Shamai, hello and welcome to In The Spotlight, a podcast from the lifestyle team at Wales Online where we sit down with some of the biggest and best names in showbiz. We'll be finding out where our guests got their big break and also some of the struggles they faced along the way. I'm your host, Sam Cook, and this week's special guest is Welsh actress Reiki Iola. Reiki Iola, we seem to be making a habit of this. And I'm loving it. Let's just keep going. 100%. Let's constantly find new things to talk about. How are you? I am very well, thank you. I was at the Globe yesterday doing a a, a sort of one of those charity concerts, you know, and sketches and speeches and songs for UNCHR, which I'm not uh, affiliated to, but a friend of mine is. And so she got a bunch of lovely performers together. Um, And I agreed to do it about five weeks ago, uh, thinking, oh, well, mom in Chichester would be well and truly settled because I hadn't really thought about the fact that I would have thousands of words swimming constantly around my head. Anyway, it was fine. I managed to learn the scene for that particular thing yesterday afternoon and did it. So that was all good. And it was and it was full house at the San Wanamakers. That was absolutely brilliant. Things seem to have been really busy for you recently. What with um, um how did you meet the Beatles? Um how how did how did you find that whole thing? Well, so we've got another two weeks, we've got another sixteen performances that we're, we're not on today, but we've got two tomorrow. And um uh the, so that offer came in Oh gosh, I don't know if it was like it was early. Was it like February maybe? I was thinking January. It was really early in the year, and and I read it, and then I thought, mm, I, it's an it's an extraordinary story, but I don't want to do it because I don't want to be on stage doing like ninety nine point nine percent of the talking because uh, that's too scary. And then I looked at it again and went, why, why wouldn't you want to do that? And then I understand. Then I met the director, and we sat for two hours, and I loved Deanna. I really loved her. So then I was like, yeah, I'm going to do it. And then the next I was like, no, I can't. She's scared. So this went on for about three weeks with a different a different take on it every day. And my agent said, well, they're not rushing you. So you've got time. Just think about it again. Think about it again. And then eventually after about three weeks, I said, OK, you know what? I can't turn this down because I, I think the story is extraordinary. Um, Adrienne Kennedy, who who is now 90, I guess she's 92 this year. She's been 92 this year. And she came over in 1967 with the idea of adapting John Lennon's in his own right and then found herself suddenly with with the Beatles and Laurence Olivier and Kenneth Tynan, who were running the National Theatre, sort of just sat, you know, at, at tables with these people. Um, and But but what looked like a, a, a huge moment in her life sort of kind of went... Um, but it's quite extraordinary. And so she tells that story to her son, and then that's that, that sort of verbatim thing that that conversation is what became the play. And I just felt I could not do it, but it's been extraordinary. So the short answer to your question is that at one point I thought none of these words will settle in my head. They're all in there, but they won't come out in the right place at the right time. And I really did think, oh, this is this hmm, this might not happen actually because. Because I can't find the I can't find the paragraph that I'm looking for right now, and Chichester and my and my director and the producers were all so patient and lovely. I guess they realised that if they freaked out, I might freak out, and then there would be no play. <laughs> they were really calm, and so it happens. It runs around one fifteen, 
and there's uh jack is in it with me as well and jack plays my son he asks her questions and then let her talk so although it's not a monologue in the truest sense it's sort of a series of monologues because he asks the first question and then doesn't talk for the next 18 minutes but but he is beautifully playing guitar at at certain points the beautiful music so he's very much part of the the show in that sense and then he'll ask another question and then I talk for another 10 minutes so that's kind of a bit like this really (laughs) I find it really interesting how you said that you know even though you're at this point in your career where you've done some amazing things you still get that kind of anxiety regarding accepting a role and and planning ahead is that would you say that's true yeah absolutely because I you know you can some jobs I go I I absolutely know I can do that and so the question really is does it fit with what we've got going on you know personally and do I want to do that thing I know? And if I know I can do it, it's probably because I've done it before. So do I want to do it again? And uh, and the answer might be yes, because I've never done it in this kind of story or I've never done it on film or I've never done it in on channel, whatever. I've, you know, it might be that. I've never worked with that director, that writer. Um, sometimes it's simply, I love doing that thing. I just want to do it again. I don't care that I've done it 10 times before. I just love it. It's so much fun. And then, and then sometimes it's, I have never done this. So I have never talked essentially for, you know, apart from the times when we're, when we're talking to each other, I'm talking for an hour and 10 minutes. I've never done that before. And, you know, I'm a menopausal midlife woman. So will my, does my brain have the elasticity to deal with that? That was a massive concern. And it continues to be, and I think it's been my biggest challenge, actually, because I, my brain does not have the same level of elasticity that it had 30 years ago. So, you know, it's it's the difference between me running for a train now and running for a train 10 years, 10 years ago, for example. And, um, and that's not to say I can't do it, just different things have to come into play. And so that was a big deal. I didn't know if I might find that my brain would go, no, I'm really not playing this game. I'm not playing. Don't care what you do, I'm not playing. So that was a concern. And just, and the physical stamina as well. The physical stamina involved in standing. I sit down twice in the whole hour and a quarter and I literally sit down for two minutes both times. So do I have the physical stamina to to perform that piece you know the Minerva is beautiful. It's not. It's not a barn of a theatre by any means at all. You know, it's it, it's the smaller of the two theatres at Chichester. But it's. I still want to be able to fill the room vocally and physically, not be on my knees at the end of it. So all that is a massive concern. And as you get older, it has to be. You know, different different things come into play. Memory, memory is challenged as as you get older and and. Um, and even the way my mind works now, there'll be occasions when um, it's like my head is full of my head is full of words, and all of them are saying "say me." Every single word on my head is saying "say me now." And then sometimes the wrong words win, and they come out. So then I have to. I'm like, oh, right, I've said. See, in this paragraph, I've said sentence three. Now I need to go back and say sentences one and two, and I need to adapt them because I've already said sentence three. So I'm literally editing when that happens. <laughs> I suppose because it keeps you on your toes, though. I imagine it, it keeps you on your does. toes. 
because there's no way I'm gonna. So you would never know. And and most, you know, and and even people like the director on press night, I jumped two pages towards the end. I jumped two pages. I didn't realize until I was in the middle of a paragraph and went, oh, I, I haven't I haven't done that last meeting with John Lennon. So then I went back to to the jump, filled in those two pages, and then jumped over the paragraph I'd already said. So all that and you as an audience member and even my director would have no idea that was happening that takes a lot of concentration and i needed to know that if things like that happen i'm not going to stand there and go sorry i've gone wrong <laughs> yeah and and reiki you were born and raised in ely in cardiff um what were your memories of growing up there growing up in ely so i wasn't actually born in ely i should i should stress because somebody might pass on that but i certainly i was in ely from when i was uh three months old well like more like 10 weeks old and I lived in nine more close and I lived in that same house until I was 18 so that's very much um influenced the person I am in all kinds of ways and it continues to do that I realize I I lived in a very turbulent house so my my memories of Ely are that Ely itself was fine and I was loved but my house if if a police car was ever going to pull up at three in the morning, they were probably coming to my house because somebody had called because somebody was punching somebody, somebody was smashing something. So my memories of that house are mixed and conflicted. Um, but my memory of being on that street with all the kids and their bikes and we would, we would, and for years I didn't have a bike. So I would, I'd be on the back of someone's chopper and we would drive uh, around more close and we'd go out onto more road and then we'd go down Grand Avenue. We'd do a sort of massive square on all these bikes. And then eventually I got, I wanted a chopper. My parents bought me a grifter, which for a while I hated, but I learned to love it. It was just a massive, massive thing. Whereas the, the chopper had little wheels, the grifter had enormous wheels. And I've got a picture of me sitting on my blue grifter. So then I didn't need to be on the back and I could join that. So that, there were loads of kids, loads of kids in that street and the surrounding streets. And because we were on a close with a hill, it was great for bikes. I mean, I've been back there a few times recently, took my husband and my kids there and just stood in front of the house that I grew up in and just stared at it for a while. Um, How did you feel? I felt weird because it's, it looks to put it bluntly, it, it doesn't look great. Let's put it that way. And my daughter said, do you think anyone lives here? I said, I don't know. And I went across the road to see if my, there was one neighbour who who had lived there before me and and is still there. And I hope is still there. I haven't seen it since last summer. Um, and I knocked her door and, and I said, Doreen, does anybody live in number nine? She said, yes, we're not quite sure what's going on. So it was it was sad, you know. I, I said to the kids, you know, my my dad used to mow the lawn. Actually, that the, the grass was not five feet high. Um, but it also felt, if like like everything does when you're little, it felt really small. The whole street felt small. And you used to, and there were bungalows at the top of this, what turns out to be really tiny hill, <laughs> um, like really tiny. And we also had to be quiet up there because the pensioners lived up there. So we we go to the top. And then we got zooming down this really small hill, which you know, it had taken all of like a second to get from the top to the bottom. And um and I 
you know, when I went to, and my my house was right opposite the primary school, so that's I think where where I learnt my really awful timekeeping because I could just sort of roll out of bed and and get be in my class, and um, and that's never left me either, unfortunately. Um, and and uh, you know, I was I wouldn't say I was aware that there weren't a lot of black kids. I I knew there weren't. You know, I knew, like, you know, that was particularly when things like Roots appeared and, um, you know, everyone wanted to call us Kizzy and Kutakinte and, you know, the, and you had those kind of, what I think of as those really childish, that childish name calling, which some adults think is really clever. Um, and I was always told to just ignore them, which I did. And it's only later in life I thought, actually, ignoring them doesn't quite work. So I, I tried a different tack. Um, and and would now just point out how ridiculous they said. Um, and because of the things, you know, I knew when even when I was at primary school, I, I knew I wanted to be a, an actress. So I, I like I used to love the Eisteddfod. We we do a really low level Eisteddfod at Winterclive Primary. Mm-hmm. They usually involved leaks and Max Boyce and and some sketch that some teacher had written about rugby. That was kind of it. <laughs> But I would always get involved. I would always get involved. Where do you think that passion came from for acting? Well, I mean, I've said way too often that that I saw Barbara Streisand in Hello Dolly on television and thought I I want to do what she's doing. And I I I've also said way too often now that that I recently looked up, um, you know, if, if you Google like christmas tv schedule somebody has put something down there because i want to know if i was making this up if i just made up this story about christmas eve watching hello dolly well it turns out i had slightly made it up it wasn't christmas eve it was the 19th of december and it was eight o'clock i think it was like a thursday and it was uh, at eight o'clock on bbc one hello dolly can you imagine them doing that now well yeah you you streaming Uh, exactly so, you know, so half the country would have been watching Hello, Dolly, and the other half watching whatever was on ITV. And I saw, so it was really exciting to know that I hadn't made it up. It was Christmas-ish, and and it was definitely there. Um, And I saw her, and I thought, I want to do that. And I don't know, it wasn't in my family. My birth mother talked about having acted a bit, in, you know, in amateur capacity, but I don't, otherwise I don't know where it came from. And... um. I just knew I wanted to do it, and and I was I was encouraged to do it. And I was I was at that point I was a singer. I was a sort of child singer. I would just sing whenever I got the chance to sing. And I used to sing songs that were way too old for me, but I would always. I was singing a lot of Barbra Streisand. I was singing a lot of ABBA. I was singing Gladys Knight and Pips. I, mean, I was like ten. <laughs> but it but it was it was just in then, and there, there are nothing ever. Um, nothing came close to that. I never woke up and thought, oh, maybe I'll be a vet. I never wanted to do anything else. And we've spoken at length before in the past uh, about kind of the various opportunities that Wales has for actors and creatives. Um, knowing, so you you obviously went to the, the Royal Welsh College of Music and Drama, and that's what you, you know, learned and practiced your trades. Um, do you ever remember a time thinking, oh, I can't do this career. Like, you, you, did you almost ever give up? So somewhere around my my oldest daughter being sort of around one and a half, one to one and a half, say, we did think, 
because I'd gone back to work, I'd done a play, Adam had done a play, and then it was quiet-ish, and quiet enough for us to think, okay, we have a child now, we can't just keep going, oh, maybe any minute now a job will appear, we need to, and that's the only time that I really considered, and then we didn't know what we'd do, we thought maybe we'd be able to rent a shop, and, and we decided, there was a big explosion of people doing um uh pottery painting parties we thought maybe we could get a franchise to do that I mean it was like so ridiculous and that's the only time but uh, but before that like when I was in my teens and stuff no I think when I was at school Glen Ely High which then became Michaelston Community College which has now been flattened completely I think one of the teachers said how about teaching drama and I think I considered that for a little while um but not even long enough to do anything about it, just just long enough to go, oh, okay, and then go, no, actually, I want to. I think then I started reading, the, like, you know, was I going to do a degree in drama so I could teach drama or a degree in English to teach drama? Was, was I going to go to drama school and do this sort of practical actor training? And I knew absolutely that's what I wanted to do. And then when I was in it, before marriage and, and you know, children and stuff no I never ever thought I can't do this all I thought was I have to find out how you make a living from it I find out sounds weird I mean I have to make a living from it so I need to I need to work out how to do that and that's a very easy thing to say because but I don't I don't actually think it's every actor's goal. So I used to think, well, isn't doesn't every actor want to make a living out of acting? And I I don't know that that's true because I because I don't think a lot of people like to think about making money from art. If it happens, great. But I don't think people like to admit that that's how they actually want to pay their bills. And I decided I want to pay my bills from acting. I don't want the primary income to be something else. And acting is something I do when I can I want that to be the reason there is money in my life and I feel like people don't talk about that enough as well I mean there's there's obviously the conversation about you gotta make money you gotta get a mortgage you all these life things but it's almost expected of actors to have another job on the side to make that income Yes. And, you know, and this is, you know, I'm not at all saying don't do that. And I'm not at all saying, you know, not at all. But I knew, again, talking about Barbara Streisand, I thought, well, she's clearly making a living from acting. And I keep seeing these people on television. I'll assume some of them are making a living from acting. How do I get to be one of those people? So my first thought, and I don't know if it was as conscious as this, was, well, first of all, you, you need to be offering something that people want to pay for which I guess means you need to be good enough for people to want to pay you. You know, do you know what I mean? And, and, um, and although, and I, and I do think there's something in the, in the makeup of, of actors that means you, we're just not for a start. As soon as somebody says you want to be an actor, um, they want to be an actor. Then somebody else says, Oh, that's difficult. Or you'll need a side job. You know, can you type? Do you do, do you do, what else do you do? And then as actors, we go, yeah, you're right. Yeah, well, yes, I can type and I can do this. And I, I, you know, I'm know, i a trained teacher and I'm a lawyer and I'm so, so I'm covered. I kind of rucked up and went, the only thing I know for sure that I can do really well is pull a really good pint and run a really good bar because that's what I'd done when I was at drama school. 
I can keep my bar very clean. I can serve two or three people at once. I'm really good at that. I have no other skills. I still can't type. Um, I can't even drive, actually. <laughs> I just Me neither. Do you, find with, do you find with driving as well, and there's the conversation, um, I, I don't know what it is. Like, I've, I'm learning to drive, but I still, oh, feel, nice I still feel like there's a bit of a, a stigma around it about if you can't drive and people go, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. But I've decided to sit in the eccentricity of that. Yeah, true. People, people do think it's a bit eccentric. Um, so I've decided to just go with it now. And people still say to me, oh, you should learn. I'm like, I'm 55. Why should I? <laughs> like, like all the things people said I would need to drive for have happened. Yes, I did carry all the baby paraphernalia and the travel cot on a train. Do you know what I mean? And as well, I tell people I have other priorities. I've had other things oh, that I need it. to think about. That's it. I, the last time I had lessons, when I was doing Shetland, they wanted me to be able to start and stop a car. And they said, we'll pay six lessons in London. And then I continued, you know, with, with and had the, a load more lessons. Then suddenly I'm like, oh, God, I've got another lesson where I just drive aimlessly around London. And mm. I was like, I mean, I'm like, I'm not, I don't want to drive up and down these streets going nowhere anymore. I'm bored with it. So then the lessons get fewer and fewer and you know, the gaps get wider and wider from lesson to lesson. And then the instructor stops calling. And it's, and that's happened since I was 17, 18. That same story. So um, so there's that. So this is kind of, and you know, and, and I, I know you can't just sort of go, yes, I'm going to make a living out of acting and a job appears. I get that. But I did. Um, and, and, and yes, it requires a certain amount of um, um coincidence and circumstance and luck and hard work and you know being match fit when the call comes in. all those things need to to come into play but I just wasn't going to be one of those people that was too shy to go I'm not here to be busy 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 but starving if I cannot make a living from acting I think I did in my 20s if I cannot make a living from acting I need to go back to that bar because I know I'd be good enough to manage the bar. Do you know what I mean? Mm. I, I I need to go back to that, that. I need to go back to that nightclub and just do that. I, I refuse to be a martyr to the world of acting. I think young actors are often afraid to say it to their parents. Like, you know, I, I'm, I'm setting out to make a living from this mom and dad. Cause mom and dad will go, Oh, Oh, it's, oh it's difficult it's difficult and you go yes mom and dad I know I know and they go it's really difficult you're gonna be okay yes mom and dad well we're here if you need to thank you what people don't say is mom and dad I'm giving myself a certain amount of time to make a living from this gig and if that doesn't work out trust me I'm not going to be living in your attic room until I'm 52 Mm. do you see yeah but people are afraid to say that. But however, I think there are, are there are also a group of young actors now whose parents, I think, have said, we're giving you five years. I think the conversation then, has changed. And then we're keeping around. Because the number of actors now who come out and they're like, whoa, the script is under one arm, the album's under the other, the anthology of poetry is ready to go. They appear fully formed. I mean, like fully formed, these young actors. And now because they've got 
you know, we've got this all so many channels all making drama with loads of money. These actors are like, yeah, I'm ready. And I really do feel like they there are a gen there are a, a group of actors from the younger generation who whose parents have said, "We're giving you five years and then we're kicking you out, so you better make you better make this work. We're not prepared to bankroll you indefinitely in a job that nobody nobody wants to pay you to do." Mm-hmm. And that's a hard thing to admit to yourself, isn't it? That if there's a lot of time when nothing's happened, it doesn't mean something won't happen eventually but it does mean that through that time no one has wanted to pay you to do to do the thing you want to do and that's really difficult to admit the times when there's been a run of no thank yous like a whole bunch of them I go you know what I right I need to analyze what's going on here because you can't get every job because it wouldn't you just can't it's not possible to do every job even if you've got every job but that was too many jobs that I didn't get in a row so what's going on and does then it take to a toll on you I'm very good and and even you, you'll hear the way I talk about it so I talk about getting jobs and not getting jobs I don't talk about the r word I don't use it I don't understand it as a thing and when I see actors say oh, oh the uh that you know the three syllable r word is part of is part of our uh is what we do it's not part of what i do that's a bit like a doctor saying that that um i i didn't become an i didn't become an actor to deal with that any more than doctors become doctors to deal with death they're trying to prevent it mm. and it does happen but it's not it's not their job their job is to work against it to 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 try to, try to stop it so I choose to talk about getting jobs and not getting jobs. Some people talk about sort of booking jobs and not booking jobs, but words I think are very important. And so, so it, I can shrug them off. There now, very rarely there'll be a job that that I get a bit, I'll get a bit teary when I don't get it. it doesn't happen often, and it'll be because it was something that I knew I could do really, really well. Um. And I could almost taste it. So when I don't get it, I think, oh, that's a, that's such a missed opportunity because I know I could have breathed life into every single corner of that. But that doesn't happen often. Most of the time I just go, it will have gone to someone, hopefully whose work I love and admire and probably someone I know personally and love and admire. And I'll watch it and they'll be great. Um, but it, But if it's a run of things, then I think I need to take, back control of that situation so I will try to observe what it is I'm bringing into the room and then you might find oh actually it's easy to say it's nothing to do with me but the fact is for the last three weeks you have been wearing this weird persona you know there's you've been giving off this aura there was even one occasion when I asked a previous agent to to get me some feedback because of five jobs in a row I didn't get and the meetings had gone really well but I knew as they said goodbye that they weren't planning to see me again. And I couldn't work out at what point in the meeting I had lost the job. I was really confused by all of them. But I knew, I knew I wouldn't get any of the jobs. I was baffled by it. And she came back and she said, uh, the truth is they don't give a f- about your kids. And I said, my kids were really small at the time. I said, what do you mean? She said, well, apparently you talk about your children a lot. 
I said, well, let me talk about my children because they ask about my children. She said, but they don't really want to know. Just something to say. And so what had been happening is I'd been going in and someone had said, oh, you've got children. How old are they? I know one's, you know, like one and one's five. And I'm like, oh, yeah, 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 yeah. So then when you do the scene, however you do the scene, it's like, mm, they're having to, they're having to see you as this this controlling MP free, whatever. And um give myself away there. And all they can see is this mum in the park. Or they want you to be the uh the, the high court judge and all they can see is the mum at the school gate. And no matter what so you it, do with this can't see beyond it. It's like they're auditioning you before you actually do the audition. Exactly. Exactly. My God. And I promise you, this is an absolutely true story. So my agent told me, she gave me that information on a Tuesday. I think this was 2010. And um, and I was kind of thrown by it. Not because they weren't interested in my children, just because I was like, did I know? I, did, I definitely only mentioned my children because somebody asked me, what have you been doing? I'm like, oh, I was you know, home with the kids, kind of thing. So... She said, I've got an audition for you uh, at the National Theatre, Richard Eyre, a play called Welcome to Thebes by Moira, Welcome to Thebes, Moira Buffini, who incidentally, with her sister Fiona, trained at Royal Welsh as well. And uh, and that meet, that audition was on a Thursday morning. So I go into that audition and the first thing Wendy Spawn, the casting director, said to me was, hi, Reiki, how are the kids? Because the last time I'd seen it, I'd brought one of them with me. I said, Wendy, they're great. Now, Richard, about this play, and then we get straight into it. They ran, like, started play 10 o'clock the next morning. It was a Friday and offered me that job. Wow. So you had to change the way you are in the audition room in order to get the job. That is shallow, I think, if, isn't it? If I had, sorry about that. If I hadn't asked my agent for that feedback I wouldn't have known I'd have gone well Wendy you'll be pleased to know I don't have either of them with me today because one of them's over there and one ends over there blah, 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 blah. I I know when I tell that story people think I'm exaggerating what happened and the time frame it happened in that all happened in a week the Tuesday phone call the Thursday meeting the Friday offer I've never forgotten how extraordinary that was and how if I hadn't taken some responsibility for the five jobs I didn't get, I would never have asked my agent to try to find out what I was leaving in the room. And it wouldn't have changed. And so I'd have chatted away to Wendy Spawn about my children and Richard A would have thought, I need her to play this kind of narcissistic West African rebel MP. And all I'm seeing is like babysitting. You do a lot with the Childhood uh, Tumour Trust. Um, yeah. Talk to us about how you first became involved with them. The Childhood Tumour Trust is a charity that supports families and young people living with neurofibromatosis type 1. Neurofibromatosis, NF1 is the abbreviation, means uh, in its simplest terms that, that tumours can form on any of your nerve endings, big, small, internal, external. Typically benign, but they're... they're the benign nature of them makes no difference if they sit on your optic nerves or around your vital organs. They can be really destructive. And if they're in your brain, they still have to be blasted, whether they're, whether they're benign or malignant. 
And my oldest daughter has NF1. So when she was diagnosed, I, I scoured the internet looking for some other parent who might know what the hell this thing was and found CTT and became a patron of what is a fabulous charity. They started out as a, as a, a, a sort of a charity to bring young people and families together socially, which they still do. But they now also do a lot of research and a lot of campaigning for better care, better, better ed, education for or medical providers because people think they know what NF1 is because they've seen a version of it. But actually, it's it, it's like a bruise. Wherever a bruise appears, it's still a bruise. But you'll have doctors go, oh, NF1, that's the thing where you have tumours on your face. And you go, well, they can be on your face. They can be anywhere. They can be tiny. They can be massive. And they go, oh, really? The number of, of doctors I've met when I've had medicals for jobs and they go, oh, is that? Oh, but no, but you can't have it on your foot. You go, you can. You can have a tumour on your foot. So a child or an adult might have a lower limb amputated because you can only get rid of the tumour if you get rid of the nerve that it sits on. We've got children in the charity who've lost their sight. Um, uh, children who, and, and you know people who are, who are wheelchair users as a result of tumours around their spines and sciatic nerves. And, um, and, they, and so they, they're all, uh, they have regular MRIs and... And we're trying to encourage just more of that, but because the NHS is so broke, but it's difficult to encourage the NHS to do more when at the moment they're doing, they're barely doing what we'd expect anyway, because there's no cash. Um, and it's a, it's a, a, one in 2,500 people apparently, but it's, it's more prevalent than a lot of better known conditions because you can, t- you can treat the symptoms without knowing anything about the condition so i could say to you i have a brain tumor i don't need to tell you i have a brain tumor because i have nf1 Mm. so it can come up it doesn't have to come up and that's why people don't know about it aside from acting and uh, your charity work um you sorry i I suppose it's part of the charity work but you do a lot with the subject of uh racial discrimination in the entertainment industry and you, you talk a lot about that um why is that topic so important to you oh well I'd say that was obvious. Yeah, it is. It is obvious, but <laughs> things have changed. Things are changing constantly, and we're telling we're telling more stories, and we're telling old stories differently. So that you know, I mean, I, I think I've said that before. I can't think of a, another way of saying that same thing. And that's meant that that change is occurring. It's you know, I think the 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 epitome of the change, whatever you think of it, is something like Bridgerton and Queen Charlotte, actually. I think that probably, that sums, those two shows sum up the change in a nutshell. Um, I think representation, and I don't, you know, whether it be racial or or, or gender or, you know, just, um, or, or ability, the representation is massive and i and it, i say this as someone who rarely saw people that looked like me as i was growing up and i didn't need i didn't need um to see people that looked like me in order to know that i wanted to do what they were doing but i do know that when i saw people that looked like me it was just like oh so it is possible to look like me and be on there i'm not i'm not completely um, I'm not completely daydreaming and and um and and 
you the, the possibilities then the possibilities are and you know and it, so it, it's a it's a weird one because I grew up I grew up at a time when you know if I was seeing people like myself I was I was seeing it was sitcoms and it was things like Roots which was kind of like traumatizing to be honest and I I remember watching Roots and thinking all the way through it that uh, like saying to my mom, this isn't real, is it? This didn't really happen. Didn't... And it, it would start by saying that Alex Haley had, you know, this was his family history. And I would go, it's not real, though, is it? It's not, re- it's not real. Because I just didn't want to believe that that humans treated other humans that way. Um, but now I think, I think the, 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 the change that I always hoped would occur is occurring. But what we're dealing with now is people feeling insecure. So so people who are used to seeing 99% of the time people who look like them are feeling insecure that they might watch a show where there's hardly anyone that looks like them, which was what which was what I had. If you see what I mean. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I would never I would never have watched television if I watched in the hope of seeing people who look like me. But now you get people going, oh, all these people in the adverts that don't look like me. And they get really upset about it. Um, oh, all these shows where people don't look like me. All these shows where people kiss, men kiss men and women kiss women. And I don't know, is that a boy or a girl? I have no idea. And oh my God, all these people dancing in wheelchairs. And, and they're really insecure about it. And it just says so much about the 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 status quo and the 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 solid nature of the status quo as it was that these people feel we're trying to blow their house down because we're saying like can we can we just have a house too you can still have your house but can we have a house do you know what i mean yeah that insecurity is growing daily so just when we thought that the the work to be done was in making sure that we were representing, suddenly as much effort is having to go into calming those people. It's like the conversation has changed. Like the it, although although it hasn't changed really, it's we there's a, there's a dis, a different aspect of it now that we need to think about. Yeah. Because those people are, they're frightened and that makes them dangerous. I think they are quite dangerous, actually. I don't think they can be dismissed. I think my parents' idea of ignoring them doesn't work. I think they are, you know, there's at their extreme, they're dangerous because they've all got like 50 guns. But aside from them, right, even the people that don't have an arson in their garage are so incredibly angry because they don't like the fact that they're being sold baked beans by people who couldn't be a member of their current family. <laughs> yeah. And the, and they can't stand back and see that the, there's no takeover happening here, right? There's like, there's no takeover happening. There's just, there's just a chance to give other people the chance to go, oh, and to give other children to go, oh, hey, like mine. And oh, you know, um, the, the same physical ability as me, and oh, yeah, that that's what it is. It's, it's a chance for other people to lean into the television and go, 
oh, that's my life. That's all it is. But all they're seeing is that it's not their life. That's all they know. It's not their life. And um, and so I feel like, I, I imagine that the TV execs are constantly having to go, how do we calm those people whilst moving forwards with with our, our uh, agenda, if you like, and I don't like that word, to be inclusive and to represent as many people as we can. How do we keep these other people calm and say, you know what? Like, you only need to go back, like there are entire TV channels of shows that are 5, 10, 15 years old, where all you'll see is wall-to-wall you. <laughs> mm. Just wall-to-wall you. It's okay. We're not trying to erase you we're trying to embrace everybody. And that, I, I don't know how they're walking that, that tightrope, that the people that make the decisions about what gets made and what goes on. Um, and, I, and we just have to hope that, that that group of people continue to want to embrace everybody and don't just decide to go, you know, it's more trouble than it's worth. Let's just go back to how it was in the 70s. <laughs> Look, we always end these podcasts with uh, two questions, the first of which is a rather reflective one. Knowing what you know now, what advice would you give to your younger self? I think the first thing that comes to mind is it's all right to say no. And I think there were so many areas of my life, Sam, where I really should have said no, because the things I said, a lot of things I said yes to, they're, they're part of my story, but they haven't actually led to me getting here. I'm here in spite of saying yes to those things, not because of them. Um, most of your life leads to wherever you are. But but no, there were too many things I said yes to that I couldn't just, they made no difference other than whatever weirdness occurred at the time, both personally and professionally. So I think it would be, it's okay to say no and say it firmly it's not the end of stuff you know and that that goes across the board like like saying no to dates even it's because you know what if I'm saying no to the person I'm meant to be with for the rest of my life um so I would often say yes and they go this is not the person I'm meant to be with for the rest of my life (laughs) and jobs like you could you could say no it was all right to say no um yeah, that's what it would be. It's okay to say no. What would you like to see happen next, whether that be in your career or in your life or, or anything, really? What would you like to see happen next for you? Okay, I'm going to squeeze quite a few things into the end. I'm going to say that um, I would, well, in terms of the, the charities, because I, I want to mention them both, actually, that the CTT, the Child Achievement Trust, going from strength to strength in terms of their um, uh, awareness, make, creating awareness of, of neurofibromatosis type 1, which I think is massively important for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people. Then the, the Active Children's Trust, which is a charity that I'm a trustee of. For myself, I, I've got a, there are, are a whole bunch of scripts that people have, have brilliantly written and, and have sent me. And I think, because I love them all, it would be great if they all happened. Um, it, it's it's a really it's a thrilling development I think when people when people say I've got a script would you read it 
um, that's happened more and more in, in the last couple of years. And that's very exciting. And there are a few that I, you know, they're just, they're just that far away from, so that would be great. And it would be great to be attached in and remain attached in a major way to all those. And yeah, and kind of, and then, then a, a project I did called uh, Chaos for Netflix, which will come out next year, I suppose. So, so the, the most sort of like tangible thing is that I hope that's, I hope that works. I hope the public like it when it eventually comes out if it's successful, because that was a joy to make and I would love to do more of that. Um, and writing as well. I really need to be more focused to get these stories out of my head. Well, Reiki, I wish you all the best in whatever you do next. Uh, as ever, it's been an absolute pleasure chatting to you. Um, from all of us, thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you so much. Bye. Thank you for listening. Don't forget, you can keep up to date with all the latest TV and showbiz news by subscribing to our newsletter over at walesonline.co.uk. Thank you.